and welcome to City Breaks London, episode 25, Diarists and Travel Writers. I'm Marion Jones. If you've been listening before, I'm sure you'll recognise my voice. But today, excitingly, there are going to be two voices because I have dragooned a volunteer, if you can indeed dragoon a volunteer. I think that might be contradictory. Anyway, I have persuaded somebody with a lovely reading voice to help me on this episode because it's going to consist largely of bits and pieces that other people wrote, diarists, people who lived in London, travellers who came to London over the centuries, so that we can hear what they all had to say about the city that we've been touring for so many episodes. And I thought it would be an interesting experiment to introduce a second voice and have a little variety. So thanks up front to Dan, who has faithfully recorded, I think it's seven or eight little texts, which I'm going to be inserting, as and when we need them. By way of introduction, I thought I might just read a few of the very short quotations I came across and enjoyed, and then we're going to move on to some longer texts. Okay, so, from somebody who lived from 1459 to 1520, and was called William Dunbar. He's left us one line, or one line that I found anyway, which tells us how much, sitting there in London 500 years ago, he loved the city. London, he wrote, Thou art the flower of cities all. And then to go along with that, here's Virginia Woolf writing in the early 20th century, I think 1915, to explain why she likes London. I decided to go to London for the purpose of hearing the Strand roar, she wrote, which I think one does need after a day or two of Richmond. So praise then for the busyness of London, the fact that it seemed to be full of life, that there was stuff to do there that it was a place that you might miss if you'd been away in the country. Perhaps in 1915, Richmond still was the country. She obviously felt sufficiently far out of the city to miss it. But the whole episode isn't going to be a eulogy to London, because there are plenty of people who lived there or visited and decided they didn't like it. And they had various reasons for that. So to summarise just two or three before we get on to the longer texts, here's one William Shenston writing in 1791 and complaining that it really is a very costly place to visit. Nothing is certain in London, he wrote, but expense. Yes, OK, admitted, you may well find that if you're wandering about, paying entrance fees, snacking here and there. All of these things cost, and possibly it's true that they cost a bit more in London than they do elsewhere. Another great complaint has been the weather. So Thomas de Quincey, writing in 1822, complained as follows. It was a Sunday afternoon, wet and cheerless, and a duller spectacle this earth of ours hath not to show than a rainy Sunday in London. So, OK, yes, admittedly, it isn't a city where you can be very sure there won't be some rain at some point. And then thirdly, Evelyn Moore, writing in 1959 about the fact that he didn't think much of London. He didn't really seem to have an actual reason. He just wrote, No one lives there who is not paid to do so. I feel perhaps that he shouldn't speak for absolutely everybody on the planet. There surely must be people who would love to live in London just for the pleasure of it. But he was keen to stress that he wasn't one of them and he wrote this in an article for the Daily Mail which he entitled, I see nothing but boredom everywhere. From the little I know about evening war, I think he was quite a difficult man to please. But I did want to give you the full picture. And on that note, 
Here, with a little more nuance, is Lord Balfour from 1944, agreeing that there's lots to recommend about London, but then adding a caveat. So he wrote, London is a splendid place to live for those who can get out of it. Maybe that's a fairer summary of what a lot of us think. How lovely to be there, what wonderful things there are to do, but yes, all the time, perhaps a bit much. So whether you're me and you live elsewhere and go up as often as you can, or whether you live there and get out now and again, I think a lot of people will probably agree with that. And also on a 50-50 theme, here's a pair of quotations which seem to contradict each other. First one reads like this. A bit of experience is excellent. A man must knock around the world or the West End of London. So just the idea that all experiences of every type are to be had in the city. Bette Midler, in 1978, made a much-quoted remark which seems to disagree with that. She seemed to find London a bit dowdy, old-fashioned, possibly lacking in excitement and entertainment. She, of course, put it much better than that. So she said, When it's three o'clock in New York, it's still 1938 in London. It would be possible to see that as part of its charm, I feel. Perhaps she did. And then the last word in this introductory section, of course, of course, to the much-quoted Samuel Johnson. I think if most people were asked for one quote about London, they would come up with this one, but I found the actual context in which it was said, so I'm going to read a slightly longer extract from James Boswell's Life of Johnson, in which he works up to the final phrase that I think most people will recognise. So, James Boswell, writing in 1777, described one of the many, many conversations he had with Johnson as follows. I suggested a doubt that if I were to reside in London, the exquisite zest with which I relished it in occasional visits might go off, and I might grow tired of it. Johnson replied, Why, sir, you find no man at all intellectual who is willing to leave London. No, sir, when a man is tired of London, he is tired of life, for there is in London all that life can afford. So, all of that by way of introduction, let's move on now to some longer extracts. And firstly, I've chosen a few historical extracts, things by people who were there for momentous events in London, which they wrote about, so giving us their own personal insight into something that we would otherwise only know about from the history books. So we're going to start in September 1666, when, on the night of the 2nd of September, of course, the Great Fire of London broke out, and hear a little bit about it from John Evelyn, one of the century's best-known diarists, beginning with something he wrote on the following day, the 3rd of September, when the fire was still raging and he decided to go down and have a closer look. So Dan's going to read us the beginning of the extract, which describes where he went and what he saw. The fire continuing... After dinner, I took coach with my wife and son and went to the bankside in Southwark, where we beheld that dismal spectacle. The whole city in dreadful flames near the waterside, all the houses from the bridge, all Thames Street, and upwards towards Cheapside, down to the three cranes, were now consumed. Oh, the miserable and calamitous spectacle, such as, haply, the world had not seen the like since the foundation of it, nor shall see outdone till the universal conflagration. And to follow that then, a second extract from the same piece, in which he gets into some of the dreadful detail of what he saw. All the sky was of a fiery aspect, 
like the top of a burning oven, the lights seen above forty miles round about for many nights. God grant my eyes may never behold the like, now seeing above ten thousand houses all in one flame, the noise and cracking, the thunder of the impetuous flames, the shrieking of women and children, the hurry of people, the fall of towers, houses and churches was like a hideous storm, and the air all about it so hot and inflamed that at last one was not able to approach it. As you may remember from a previous episode, that wasn't even the only terrible fire that took place in London. There was, for example, also the catastrophic night in October 1834, when the Houses of Parliament were destroyed by fire. An event witnessed, in fact, by an American visitor, William Archer Shee, who wrote about it. And Dan's going to read us a little extract from what he had to say. I visited the scene of devastation today. But what with the crowd, the smoke, the mud and the police, who keep you at a respectful distance, I failed in carrying away any very definite idea of how matters stand. There are acres of tottering walls and sashless windows. But whether the ruin is such as will admit of measures of repairs, or will entail the entire rebuilding of the structure, no person can possibly form an idea from the point of observation to which the general public is admitted. Just a few years earlier than that, in 1821, one Joseph Farrington was in London on the occasion of the coronation of George IV. And the extract I'm going to read is not, in fact, about the pomp and ceremony, or the solemnity of the occasion. It deals with another aspect, which was, in fact, talk of the town for anybody who had seen it happen or heard that it had happened. And that is the fact that Queen Caroline, unfortunately much unbeloved by her husband, had tried to attend the coronation, but been locked out of the Abbey, if you can imagine such a thing. This is how Joseph Farrington described it. About half past six o'clock, the Queen appeared. She had attempted to obtain entrance into the Abbey, but had been refused. He saw her cross the procession platform. Lord Hood and a lady or two were with her. He thought she looked like a blousy landlady. Her reception was very unfavourable. Shame, shame, and off, off, was the general cry. Though a few cried, Queen. He said she must now be convinced of her unpopularity with the respectable part of the community, and that she has only the notice of the vulgar mob. The king, in proceeding to the abbey, looked pale, but on his return to Westminster Hall, had recovered his look, and appeared cheerful. He was much applauded. It does sound as if the general populace agreed with the king, but I feel a bit sorry for poor Queen Caroline. She hadn't been invited to the ceremony, her attempt to gatecrash was publicly and humiliatingly rebuffed. And only three weeks later, she died. Talking about queens and their involvement in public and dramatic events, there was also the assassination attempt on Queen Victoria, which took place in 1840, as she was being driven along in a carriage quite near to Buckingham Palace. Charles Greville was there. He wrote about it in his journal. Quote, on Wednesday afternoon, as the Queen and Prince Albert were driving in a low carriage up Constitution Hill, about four or five in the afternoon, they were shot at by a lad of eighteen, who fired two pistols at them successively, neither shot taking effect. He was in the Green Park without rails, and he was only a few yards from the carriage, and, moreover, very cool and collected. It is marvellous he should have missed his aim. In a few moments, the young man was seized, 
without any attempt on his part to escape or deny the deed, and was carried off to prison. The Queen, who appeared perfectly cool and not the least alarmed, instantly drove to the Duchess of Kent's to anticipate any report that might reach her mother, and having done so, she continued her drive and went to the park. By this time the attempt upon her life had become generally known, and she was received with the utmost enthusiasm by the immense crowd that was congregated in carriages, on horseback and on foot. All the equestrians formed themselves into an escort and attended her back to the palace, cheering vehemently, while she acknowledged, with great appearance of feeling, these loyal manifestations. Amongst other things, these two extracts, written about events which happened only twenty years apart, tell us about the public reaction to two different queens. One reviled and rejected, and the other, seemingly, and to use a much more modern phrase, queen of everyone's hearts. And for one last historical glimpse, let's go to London in 1945 to VE Day, so the end of the Second World War, witnessed by James Lee Mill and written up then in his diary. This is VE Day at last. At midnight I insisted on our joining the revels. It was a very warm night. Thousands of searchlights swept the sky. Otherwise there were no illuminations and no streetlights at all. Claridge's and the Ritz were lit up. We walked down Bond Street, passing small groups singing, not boisterously. Piccadilly, however, was full of swarming people and littered with paper. We walked arm in arm into the middle of Piccadilly Circus, which was brightly illuminated with arc lamps. Here the crowds were yelling, singing and laughing. They were orderly and good-humoured. All the English virtues were on the surface. We watched individuals climb the lamp posts and plant flags on the top amidst tumultuous applause from bystanders. We walked down Piccadilly towards the Ritz. In the Green Park there was a huge bonfire under the trees, and one too near one poor tree caught fire. So, so many moments of history captured by diarists and visitors. But I found so many other extracts which also tell us lots about London, just about the small moments, capturing the atmosphere in some way. And of course, of course, we have to have an extract about the fog in London. Perhaps less talked about these days, but seemingly the only topic of conversation at the end of the 19th century. And this extract, written by George Gissing in a letter to his brother from 1880, certainly captures that. Last Saturday week, we had the worst day and night known in London for very long. After nine at night, the street lamps were perfectly useless. You could scarcely see the light, even standing directly under them. I had to go to Bert's that night, and in returning I was more than two hours making three miles, but I had absolutely and literally to grope with my stick, like a blind man all the way. No buses dared to run, and the few cabs and carts which continued to voyage did so with the driver walking at the horse's head, with a lantern in his hand. Boys made an admirable trade with links and lanterns, which were, however, of little use. I had to give such a boy a penny to be taken over King's Cross. I should never have found my way into the right street, though I am familiar with the place as with my own study. To continue the theme of, let's call them the grittier aspects of London, here's Thomas Carlyle writing in 1824 about the noise and the chaos and the hubbub that he witnessed when he was in Smithfield, this of course being in the days when Smithfield was London's main meat market. So this is what he wrote. Today I chanced to pass through Smithfield, when the market was three-fourths over, 
I mounted the steps of a door and looked abroad upon the area, an irregular space of perhaps thirty acres in extent, encircled with old dingy brick-built houses and intersected with wooden pens for the cattle. What a scene! Innumerable herds of fat oxen, tied in long rows or passing at a trot to their several shambles, and thousands of graziers, drovers, butchers, cattle brokers, with their quilted frocks and long goads, pushing on the hapless beasts, hurrying to and fro in confused parties, shouting, jostling, cursing, in the midst of rain and shan, and braying discord, such as the imagination cannot figure. It may add to your enjoyment, perhaps, to know that shan is the word for dung, a picture to keep in your head, perhaps, next time you are passing through Smithfield, which does, I think you'll agree, look very different today. And then there is the endless topic of crime in London, about which one could surely fill an entire podcast, on thefts and swindlings and murders, on trials in London's famous courts, on Newgate Prison and the days when public hangings were fairly common events. But instead, I've picked one very short extract by someone called John Byram, writing in 1725 about being the victim of a much lesser crime, but one that was rife in London, probably still is rife in London, and that's pickpocketing. He tells us how he went out and about in London, to Lincoln's Inn, and then up Fleet Street, stopping for coffee, doing a bit of shopping, and then suddenly realising that despite his precautions, yes, he had fallen victim to a pickpocket. I went with Clowes to the Vine Tavern, while he dined on a beef steak. Hence through Lincoln's Inn Fields, thence to the booksellers by Temple Bar, thence to Richard's, coffee, tuppence, thence to Paul's Churchyard, and had my handkerchief picked out of my pocket very strangely about Ludgate Hill, for I had my hand in my pocket most part of the way and was resolved it should not go. It's certainly the case that much of what we know about London in the 19th century comes from Charles Dickens, and I'm sure I'll feature something from him in the next episode, which is going to be literary extracts about London, but here it seems more appropriate to mention something from his Sketches by Boz, published in 1836, which are more journalistic in nature, just bits and pieces he noticed and wrote up in his own inimitable fashion, from his walking, endless walking, round the city of London. So I've picked a couple of short extracts from something called The Gin Shop, where he writes about the contrast to be seen in London from a comparison of the lives of the poor with those of their richer neighbours. So to begin with then, this is what he writes about the lives of those of little means in the London of the 1830s. The filthy and miserable appearance of this part of London can hardly be imagined by those, and there are many such, who have not witnessed it. Wretched houses with broken windows patched with rags and paper, Every room let out to a different family, and in many instances to two or even three. Fruit and sweet stuff manufacturers in the cellars, barbers and red herring vendors in the front parlours, cobblers in the back, a bird fancier in the first floor, three families on the second, starvation in the attics, Irishmen in the passage, a musician in the front kitchen, and a charwoman and five hungry children in the back one. Filth everywhere, a gutter before the houses and a drain behind, Clothes drying and slops emptying from the windows. Girls of fourteen or fifteen with matted hair, walking about barefoot and in white greatcoats, almost their only covering. 
boys of all ages in coats of all sizes and no coats at all, men and women in every variety of scanty and dirty apparel, lounging, scolding, drinking, smoking, squabbling, fighting and swearing. So that is quite a description, and it becomes even more striking because of what follows when Dickens turns his attention to how the better off, living really not far away from these people, are faring. You turn the corner. What a change! All is light and brilliancy. The hum of many voices issues from that splendid gin shop which forms the commencement of the two streets opposite. And the gay building with the fantastically ornamented parapet, the illuminated clock, the plate glass windows surrounded by stucco rosettes, and its profusion of gaslights in richly gilt burners is perfectly dazzling, when contrasted with the darkness and dirt we have just left. The interior is even gayer than the exterior. A bar of French polished mahogany, elegantly carved, extends the whole width of the place. And there are two side aisles of great casks, painted green and gold, enclosed with a light brass rail and bearing such inscriptions as Old Tom 549. Young Tom 360, Samson 1421. There is then no getting away from the fact that so many people led difficult, problem-ridden, terrible lives in London. It's so easy for them to just be statistics. But the extract I'm about to read puts a name to one and allows her to speak in her own voice. She's going to explain it herself, but it's a story with a dreadful ending because her drowned body was pulled out of the Thames by William King, Inspector of the Thames Police. She had thrown herself in, committed suicide, as became clear when the following letter was found in her clothing. She wrote, The crime I am about to commit, and for which I must suffer hereafter, is nothing to compare to my present misery. Alone in London, not a penny or a friend to advise or lend a helping hand, tired and weary with looking for something to do, Failing in every way, footsore and heart-weary, I prefer death to the dawning of another wretched morning. I have only been in Britain nine weeks. I came as a nursery governess with a lady from America, to Wick in Scotland, whence she discharged me, refusing to pay my passage back, giving me only my wages, which amounted to three pounds and ten shillings. After my expenses in London, I found myself in this great city with only five shillings. Now I am destitute. God of heaven, have mercy upon a poor helpless sinner. I cannot tread the path of sin, or my dead mother will be watching me. Fatherless, motherless, home I have none. May all who hear of my end forgive me, and may God Almighty do so, before whose bar I must so soon appear. Farewell to this beautiful yet wretched world. Alice Blanche Oswald P.S. I am 20 years old on the 14th of this month. Such a desperate letter, which must have been written about 150 years ago, but which surely is so vivid that it speaks to us today. Yes, it makes for difficult reading, but I just couldn't leave it out. And to finish the episode, I wanted to find something that summed up what it is about London that attracts so many people. And I came across a letter written by Charles Lamb to his friend William Wordsworth, in which he attempts to explain what it is he loves about London. He's been invited up to the Lake District by Wordsworth and his sister Dorothy. He hasn't really got the money to go, but he's writing to say that although he's sad that he won't be seeing them, 
He's not too sad that he won't be able to spend time in the lakes because London is what he likes. I don't much care, he writes, if I never see a mountain in my life. I have passed all my days in London until I have formed as many and intense local attachments as any of you mountaineers can have done with dead nature. I do think that surely the well-rounded person wants both in their lives, but he does put it rather well. And so back to Dan, who's going to read us what Charles Lamb wrote when trying to sum up what exactly it was about central London that he so loved. The lighted shops of the Strand and Fleet Street, the innumerable trades, tradesmen and customers, coaches, wagons, playhouses, all the bustle and wickedness round about Covent Garden, the very women of the town, the watchmen, drunken scenes, rattles, life awake, if you awake, at all hours of the night, the impossibility of being dull in Fleet Street, the crowds, the very dirt and mud, the sun shining upon houses and pavements, the print shops, the old bookstalls, parsons cheapening books, coffee houses, steam of soups from kitchens, the pantomimes, London itself a pantomime, and a masquerade. All these things work themselves into my mind and feed me, without a power of satiating me. The wonder of these sights impels me into night walks about her crowded streets, and I often shed tears in the motley strand from fullness of joy at so much life. Well, they say great minds think alike, and there you have Charles Lamb, who loves London because it's so full of life, agreeing really with Samuel Johnson, and his comment that there is in London all that life can afford. So that brings us to the end of today's episode, just the briefest of smatterings of all the many, many, many things that have been written about the City of London, but one which I hope gives you a little bit of a flavour of what the city in all its facets is like and has been like over the years, and gives you perhaps some food for thought, some ideas for things to go on and read. So that could be full works, things like The Diaries of Pepys or John Evelyn, or Boswell's Life of Johnson, or alternatively, I always find a pleasant afternoon can be whiled away with an anthology, and I did use quite a few in the preparation of this episode, so I thought I might just mention one or two. Two that were really useful were written by the same pair of people, Travis Elborough and Nick Renison, who wrote both A Traveller's Year and A London Year. The first one, A Traveller's Year, takes you through the year day by day and just has extracts from travel diaries. It goes throughout history, it goes to many corners of the world, it's a great read. And their London year then goes through the year from January to December and has little extracts of things that were written in or about London for every day. I consulted a number of other anthologies too. They tend to favour more the literary than the journalistic. So I'll talk a little bit more about those in the next episode. But just to mention their titles, The Blue Guide, A Literary Companion to London, London, an illustrated literary companion, compiled by Rosemary Gray, and City Lit London, edited by Heather Rays. I would absolutely recommend any of those if you're browsing in bookshops or writing a wish list, not just because they're an enjoyable read in their own right, but because they give you lots of starting ideas for things to go and find in full. So then, we are now very near the end of the London series, just two episodes to go, another anthology episode, more literary in inclination, and a final bucket list episode, where I've been collecting ideas from a whole range of people for things that it would be great to do in London, many of which 
haven't been mentioned or have only been mentioned in passing in the episodes to date. So I hope very much that you'll join me for both of those. And for the meanwhile, thank you then very much for listening today and goodbye. <laughs>